When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Anna Levy. Many of us have heard of big tobacco, big oil, and big pharma, each in the news for withholding information over the course of decades on the devastating public health impacts caused by their products. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Melissa Mialon about her new book, Big Food & Co., which lays out how the food industry's corporate structure, industrial concentration, and aggressive marketing playbook have similarly devastating public health impacts. Through meticulous reporting on and from several continents, seemingly disparate anecdotes from Brazil to Mauritius help piece together a common commercial footprint on health, equity, science, and democracy. Dr. Mia Lone is Associate Professor at Trinity College Dublin in Ireland. She's a food engineer with a PhD in nutrition and co-coordinates the governance, ethics, and conflict of interest in public health network based out of the American University of Beirut in Lebanon. Her research focuses on commercial determinants of health and particularly on the practices used by corporations to influence public health policy, research, and debate. Let's get started. Hi, Dr. Mia Lone. Welcome to New Books and World Affairs. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks to you. Thanks for the invitation. I I was first introduced to the concept of commercial determinants of health just two years ago through your work. So it's really a pleasure for me to be speaking with you today and to be talking with you about uh, a book that you've just published, Big Food, Inc. So let's go ahead and begin. I want to ask, can you tell me a little bit about what led you to this field? How did you find yourself focused on the food industry and on a topic like commercial determinants of health, which as far as I understand, didn't even exist a decade ago. Yes. So how I got interested in that field, um, I undertook a training in food engineering in France. And we had um, some of the big companies in Europe, like Nestle, Danone, and others, coming to our engineering school to give us classes. So I had learned about what the industry was doing and how to produce foods, etc. And at that time already, I felt like there was um, little concern about the health of people and also the way we treated also the employees because I was supposed to be an engineer. So supervising people, there was little concern for the way we were treating the people we were working with. And I had raised those concerns with my professors, but... um, but it was not something that interested them. And there was no question in in changing our practices. 
So then I got to do an internship internship in a humanitarian um, NGO charity in France, uh, which was for my internship. I was looking at their future, and in the future, they were thinking that there will be more people living with hunger, but also people facing other issues in terms of health and diet. But but because of over the the over consumption of unhealthy products. So they were, you know, having already people with diabetes and cancers and things like that coming to their uh, agency in the different countries they were working with. Um, and and at the same time that they were receiving people with hunger. And then I did also an internship in the UN system, uh, the UN Standing Committee on Nutrition, which is an agency works with different organizations at the UN, uh, the World Health Organization, the Food and Agriculture Organization, UNICEF, and, and that uh, the UN Standing Committee is in charge of coordinating the discussion on nutrition. And I just felt like there was so much influence from corporations at that level. Um, and I felt also people in public health and nutrition were, were quite naive about what the industry was doing and what could be the solutions that I felt I should be um, changing fields. And instead of staying in food engineering, I should be working in public health, which I did when I started a PhD uh, in nutrition. And I worked on the lobby of um, lobbying of corporations in the food industry for my PhD. Um, then the, the field of commercial determinants of health, um, I'm always saying that it has existed before researchers discussed about it, you know, five, four years ago. Um, and it has existed because of the work of civil society organizations, charities, activists, also advocates in different countries, low and middle income countries mainly. Um, so those people have always fought against corporations and, and, and described all of the practices that corporations had and that was impacting their health and their living wood, etc. So, um, and there are um, organizations like Corporate Accountability, uh, FIAN International and others who have done a great job. What we did uh, in research perhaps differently is that we have um, discussed those things in terms of academic um, writing and how does that discussion sits in the in the academic literature. So there were discussions in social science, for example, in public health as well, political science. And we are saying that there is a broad scope of practices by different corporations. So I was working on the food industry, then worked on the alcohol industry. I have colleagues who have worked on the tobacco or pharma industry, big oil, etc. And we know that they are all using more or less the same practices to influence our politicians, to influence the science behind, um, you know, behind their products and 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 other things. Um, and their products themselves are also very very similar. So, as a food engineer, for example, many of my colleagues who did the same masters as me now work in the pharma industry or in the alcohol industry. So so on that side, in the on the industry side, once you know how to work in marketing or in formulation or in processing, then you can use your knowledge to any kind of industry. 
Um, and I felt that was something we weren't understanding in public health, that all of those industries are very similar. They use very similar practices. And we were afraid to say that because tobacco is somehow seen as a paria, <laughs> as using different practices and perhaps a bit more aggressive than the others. But then they are not really more aggressive. They are just, you know, it's just that we knew what they were doing because we have internal documents from them. We have more information from them, but I don't think they're any different from the other industries I've studied. There's a lot in there. And um, I want to start with the title of the book, uh, Big Food. So part of what you're saying is most people are familiar or have at least heard of big oil or big tobacco, even if they don't necessarily know what does that mean. But what, what is big food? Who is it made of? How does it operate? And... Is there, is there a line that can be drawn, a parallel between big food, big tobacco, big oil? Yes. So the title is Big Food and Co., like for other, you know, uh, other corporations and, uh, and other big industries. Um, and I've, so it's called Big Food because that's the area where I've published the most as an academic and that I know the most because I'm an engineer. But what we are saying is that, you know, if you start with the product, for example, what is really hurting our health? Because then I'll discuss other practices, but the products themselves, we know that there is a category of products which are ultra, ultra processed. So too much processed, you know, if we can say that. Um, And that are hurting our health. You know, there is a, there is now a clear field of research and a lot of evidence that those products are hurting our health. So an example, for example, you have bread. So you have, you have white bread. Bread. This is an ultra-processed food because it, it looks nothing like, you know, um, the bread that you would have if you were just taking wheat, you know, um, and and doing like and it's flour because flour is processed to some extent and you use that in your kitchen, but then in white bread in supermarkets, then you have a lot of other ingredients, additives, you know, um, and, and even white, the white flour is different than the brown flour. So this is an ultra processed food. So what is also an ultra processed food is the brown bread when it's white flour where you add additives or you bring back fibers, for example, into the product, but but it was extracted in the, in the first place. Um, and you recombine all of those different things and you make a brown bread, which is still not very, very healthy. So uh, something that wouldn't make you sick is, is a brown bread, but where the brown, you know, uh, flour is, is, not, is not something that you add... Um, taken and extracted and make a white flour and added then fibers after, you know, so um, the product itself itself is making us sick. Then we know also that the marketing of those corporations is making us sick because they are very aggressive, targeting children, for example, and sometimes, you know, and often it's not very clear that it's marketing, so they would go to schools or, you know, on social media, um, and be very, um, very, very active in our lives. TV shows, for example, you would have a star drinking alcohol or drinking a soft drink. You wouldn't think it would influence you, but we know that the industry is, is placing. It's called placement. So they give, they give to soft drinks and those products uh, 
you know, in different movies, for example, to, to, to people who are famous so that those people drink, eat, and because we we like those people, we love those people, so then we are unconsciously doing the same and we want to drink the same thing and consume the same thing, same thing as those people. So that is just one example of, uh, you know, of how you can market a product. Uh, we know advertisements on television, etc., radio, billboards, but it's not the only way that we got... Um, we got to know about a product and we want to consume a product. And then my, my expertise is really on, really on the political, political practices of those corporations. How, how do they try to go and talk with our governments? So it could be directly lobbying, as we know. Um, so going to the Congress and talking with our politicians, um, also funding political parties and elections, but it's also, um, you also have other forms of influence with people from a company going to work in the government, for example, um, and or someone from the government going to work in a company. So then the person from the government still has a contact or his contact in the government. It's easy to push for the interest of your company um, with the government if you have someone who used to work there. Um, the industry is also influencing science, and I'm talking about the food industry, but you know it's it's very true for true for other industries. So, food companies are funding a lot of research in nutrition. We had done a study of the ten top journals in nutrition, so the mo- most famous journals, scientific journals in nutrition. Amongst them, we had seen that I think it was thirteen percent, so more than one in ten scientific article is funded by the industry, uh, by the food industry. And we even found that amongst the top 10 journals, there is one journal which is entirely um, made by the industry. It was founded, funded by the the, the food industry, uh, even in the top 10 journals. And why is that possible? Because nutrition researchers, they don't always know that it's the food industry. It's not the Coca-Cola <laughs> Coca-Cola Journal of Nutrition. No, it's not. No, it's not called like that. It's called ILSI, um, the organization um, who fund, funds that journal, and the journal is Nutrition Reviews. So Nutrition Reviews sounds like you know something independent, but in fact, it's funded by ILSI. It's itself. If you look at who funds it, then it's Nestle, Coca-Cola, and all of the other big companies. Um, so it's difficult for someone who works in nutrition to know, you know, trace back all of those links to the food industry, but in reality, they are, you know, they are here. Um, Beyond the influence on nutrition and on the science of nutrition, the influence on our politicians, those corporations are also very good at going to communities, vulnerable communities in particular, where, you know, the government is not always present. So they will um, develop activities, different initiatives for kids, for example, and it looks great. You know, you can have sports camps, for example, for from McDonald's or Coca-Cola. It looks great because um, sometimes it's the only opportunity for those children to play and, and have physical activity. But in fact, the industry is there in those communities, not because they like them or want to help them, but because those are... A potential market for the industry. So on those activities, on those camps, you will have the logo of the company everywhere. So then it, it um, it's there in your mind. And when you go to the supermarket, you know the company 
has done great things for you. So if you have to choose between different soft drinks, for example, you will take the one where you can remember the logo and what the company has done for you. And once you go out of poverty, when once you get a little bit, bit more money, um, then the, the company is hoping that you will buy, continue to buy their products. Um, and then if we continue, so we had the products, the political, scientific influence, influence on communities. There is also that framing. Um, corporations are in the food industry and other industries are very good also at blaming people for getting, you know, fat or for having obese or having obesity, as I prefer to say. Um, so they are they are always blaming people for things that we should be blaming the industry for because if those ultra-processed products that I've discussed about were not present in supermarket or somehow if there was if there were some restrictions on their sales or the way they advertise those products, then we wouldn't be so sick. We would have, you know, a choice between different products, but products that are not making us sick. Um, so, so the industry is also very good at framing way, framing things in a way that doesn't blame the industry itself, but blame people for being sick. Um, and at the end of, you know, after that, those different practices, there is also our um, economic and political system, which is very favorable to companies. So even if we were voting for different people, even if we were putting some constraints on, on some of those different activities, trying to improve the products, we live in a neoliberal economy, which um, which is supporting corporations and corporations are also pushing for that system to stay in place. Um, so so in any way, even if, if we were changing things, as long as we don't really change our system, um, those things will remain more or less the same. Uh, and this is also what we speak about when we discuss the commercial determinants of health. So how are our, how our own system is also making us sick. Can you elaborate on the health outcomes associated with commercial determinants of health? Um, yes. We, we know about social determinants of health. So the idea that someone's zip code or class background is what actually is most associated with their health outcomes instead of individual choices and behavior, like you mentioned. Um, what are some of you mentioned uh, obesity? What are some of the other population health outcomes in in different countries, actually? Um, and how? what is this idea that they're commercially determined? What could it look like for those health outcomes to not be commercially determined, for example? Yeah. So if we talk about know, diabetes, for example, diabetes is also determined by, you know, um, and um and it's an health outcome from those commercial determinants of health. So you have diabetes, cancers. If I just, you know, speak about the food industry, but then, you know, um, you have corporations also in the with cars, automobile industry, for example, um, that causes accidents. Um, alcohol, which is another, another sector where I work, you know, you drink, the more you drink alcohol, the more you have risk of, risks of developing cancers, which the industry doesn't want you to know. Uh, but beyond those cancers, you also have um, uh, violence, you know, that is also led by the drinking of alcohol. 
Uh, and, and we know, you know, if I could just give examples, so in, in Australia, for example, Australia, in those rural communities uh, with indigenous people, I was once um, told that in those communities, a, a colleague had found products that were forbidden to be sold in Australia because of, you know, they were not safe enough. Um, the quality of them was very, very poor, and it was it was products. It those were products that were supposed to be sold from Australia sent to China. Um, so it's a different question, you know, sending products to a, a another country uh, which has you know standards that are not you know so high as in your country. It's it's another problem, and it's also you know part of the same discussion, but even within Australia, those projects were still sold to those poor communities uh, just because they were very, the projects were, were very cheap. So the corporations made the choice to, to keep those projects that were not safe enough in the country and sell them to poor people. So um, in those communities, which are very isolated, people didn't really have a choice but to buy uh, those products. So this is a di direct choice of, you know, a corporations having, you know, an impact on your life. Um, so you have, you know, you have other examples like that where corporations are choosing for um, Colombia. If I take, if I take Colombia uh, in Latin America, you had a company, software company, making an experiment. It's also like an experiment, but they were pretending it was to help people and children in particular. They were giving free soft drinks for children. One was a soft drink, and I think the other was. Um, a fruit juice, but with 1% of uh, fruit in it. So, you know, and a lot of sugar, I think, in it. They were giving those to children with the, um, the, the, the message that those projects were helping children eat something or drink something and giving them more energy. But we know that those projects are increasing the risks of those kids having diabetes. Um, the thing is that the company was giving that to those children because the government was not helping those populations. They were isolated again, no help, no food. So the industry was there. What uh, my colleagues discovered is that the industry was there and taking anthropometric measures. So like they were measuring, you know, the uh, and even taking blood, blood samples. So measuring the height, the weight, everything, how things have changed over time with the when those kids were taken, taking that those drinks. And it was for um, advertising the products as making, you know, people more energized. And and uh, uh, in in other parts of Colombia, they were uh, they wanted to do that with a kind of scientific, you know, um, backup for that. So taking making those experiments on those kids without any ethical approval or anything, uh, and the kids were like, you know, just drinking those soft drinks in, in during the day. That was the only thing that they had. So um, so it's very difficult because often it's vulnerable populations who suffer the most from diabetes, cancers, um, and you know, other health issues, health outcomes. Because often, you know, in the many countries that, that I've been to, it's the government, I've mentioned them, that, that, you know, not being there for those people. And, you know, hence you have those companies Pretending that they are, they are doing good things, are good corporate citizens, and and giving those products to people, but often with something in mind, you know, they just want to open a new market or have a good image in the community or outside even the community. Once they use the the information that they they got from those specific initiatives, 
but it's it's often yeah children, um, women, indigenous people, um, and the poorest segments of the population who, who suffer the most and will pay the most because those corporations are are trying to push for their products in those in those communities. Can you can you elaborate? Can you give a few more examples? You've you've been pretty intentional, it seems, with um, uh, co-producing research in regions that where this research is being done by social movements, by community organizations, and the academic research on this topic isn't quite as strong yet. So can you talk about the choice to spend more of your time um, co-producing research in different parts of the world? I know you've been in uh, Colombia, in Brazil, I think in South Africa. What is yes. the what is the research environment on this topic like? And what are some examples that you can share of what corporate political influencing activities look like in different countries right now where it's totally, um, you know, food companies have been doing this in the U.S. since the, you know, since the first settlers arrived. And this is part of what the United States uh, colonial capitalism, colonial racial capitalism has been built on is the food industry. But what does it look like uh, to have big parts of, of the food industry sort of entering new markets now? And as part of that question, what you know, what's been your motivation to spend more of your time, I think, outside outside of Europe, uh, researching and asking these questions? Yeah. Um, so I guess you know, there are several responses to that question. So first, I'm, uh, for, you know, I have a multiple background myself. Uh, part of my family is from France, part is from Italy, another part is from Mauritius uh, in the Indian Ocean. Uh, and themselves, they came from, you know, as slaves from Africa, some and some as indentured labor from India. Um, so I had understood, you know, a long time ago when I was a kid going to Mauritius, the difference between what I could see in supermarkets in France and, and in Mauritius. Also, over the years, when I was an adolescent, I could see that Mauritius was changing. So they were, you know, developing their economy. But then, for example, on restaurants, um, owners of restaurants didn't have the, enough money to make nice, you know, presentations for their restaurants. So you would have Coca-Cola or Pepsi going there, offering them the menus, you know, like the, um, and even um, the presentations for their stores, offering to paint the restaurant, um, giving them fridges and things like that. So a whole street, <laughs> you know, with the colors of Coca-Cola or Pepsi, and I've seen the same in the Pacific where I've worked in Fiji, uh, for example, it was the same. So those countries which are isolated um, and which are trying to develop their economies are being bombarded by those companies. And I, I had understood that, you know, a long time ago, even before, um, studying that that specific issue of corporate influence on, on our health. Um, and when I started, so I had that experience working in a humanitarian organization because I wanted to do something for the people. Um, I'm seeing myself as, you know, coming from, uh, I come from a, a low-income background, so I've always wanted to help people uh, and the people of my country and, and um I also understand racism myself and other, you know, issues that people face. 
So I had that that experience when I was finishing my master's of food engineering in that humanitarian organization in France, where they were saying that in the future they will face hunger, but also obesity, cancers, and other form, form of mal, forms of malnutrition. And I thought, you know, there is that's a big concern um, because they were not yet able to solve the problem of hunger, that there was another problem coming at them. Um, and I had done a project on that. The key issue was corporations going to those countries, selling products in a smaller size, uh, Coca-Cola, for example, in a very small size, so that can pe- people can buy it because they have little money, but still, you know, they can can buy something. And the, for the company, it was with the hope that once they get more money, they will buy the uh, normal size of the product and, and we spend, of course, more money on those products. So so those companies were posing a problem in, in many different countries around, around the globe. Uh, so for my PhD, I've decided to work in, in Fiji, in the Fiji Islands, and I had looked at the food industry. The issue with those countries, you know, many, many low and middle income countries is that they look at us in the US, look at us in Europe and think that we are happy with those companies, that they are making us happy. Like, you know, it's the slogan of some, you know, company open happiness, etc. So to those companies, uh, sorry, those people in those low and middle income countries, they think that it's still the values that we are. And, and for many, it's still, you know, we still love those products and we consume them a lot. But in terms of health, now we understand that they are making us sick. You know, and it's very clear that sugar-sweetened beverages, for example, are making us sick. So um, at least from a health perspective, we are not so naive about those products anymore. Um, in Fiji, for example, there was that uh, Olympics for children in high school. The Olympics, um, it was a big event in the country once a year around Easter time. It was shown on television. You had a person from uh, from a company sponsoring the event that would come to Fiji. So before it was the tobacco industry sponsoring that event. So you would have someone from the tobacco industry from Australia or New Zealand going to Fiji and, and you know, making a lot of noise around those events. But... Uh, but Fiji understood, and the Ministry of Health, the Ministry of Education understood that it was perhaps not so good to have the tobacco industry sponsoring the events. So when I went there, um, it was eight years ago, it was then Coca-Cola sponsoring the event. So it was the Coca-Cola Games. And you would have someone from, I think, New Zealand coming to um, Fiji uh, from Coca-Cola. She would... Um, go with the children between one Coca-Cola factory to the other with the flame, like in the Olympics, the flames with the color and the brand of Coca-Cola. Um, so it was a bit you know, crazy to see that because at that time in Australia, in Europe, in the US, we already had the discussion that you know, perhaps it was not best to have Coca-Cola sponsoring physical ignition, you know, physical activity programs and, and, and putting their brands everywhere around children. But Fiji was not understanding that. They understood that you know tobacco was an issue, but why would they not receive money from Coca-Cola and why not you know Coca-Cola sponsoring those events? Because that's the message that we gave them, you know, before. Like we had done so much, so much of those programs with the food industry before in our own countries that 
low and middle income countries just look at us and think it's good. Um, so in those countries, also the issues that I have worked in Latin America, then, you know, South Africa, as you mentioned, and other countries, the issues that uh, those, like the political influence, for example, lobbying, donations to political parties, um, even just, you know, emails sent to, from the industry to policymakers, those are not made transparent. So in our countries, we have, you know, there are not not everything is perfect, but at least we have some transparency around what is happening, so we can criticize or we can ask for change. In most of the countries where I've been, low and middle income countries, um, nothing is transparent, so people don't even know what is happening. It's happening behind closed doors, and it's our our companies. And I, I'm saying ours because in the US you have like big big um, big food companies. But we have two in Europe with Nestle and Danone, for example, that I've mentioned before. So our company is going to those, com- to those countries, pushing for their products, influencing their policymakers, doing things that we have refused that they do 10 years ago or 20 years ago in our own countries. Um, so because they can't do that anymore, like marketing to children or um, sponsoring certain events, then they do that in those poorest countries. Uh, and to me, it looks terrible because to me, it's another form of colonialism. It's not our governments, you know, going there and, and colonizing those countries, but it's our corporations, often pushed and helped by our governments, uh, I have to say. Um, but but it's another form of colonialism. Who are the groups in in various countries? I know I've spent a lot of time in Central American countries with um, many different uh collectives and movements, mostly indigenous, who have been um, naming this kind of uh, food industry colonialism for a long time. So who are some of the groups, whether they are inside or outside capital cities, whether they're inside or outside um, formal research institutions, but who, who would you say have, have been working on this question for a long time who have a lot of information, who are um, naming different processes that are happening. Who have you encountered? Who have you worked with? Who have you mm-hmm. seen that we should be um, better understanding how they're already doing what they're what they're doing to, you know, move toward a system that is different as it is encroaching on their system? Yeah. Uh, so I would say I don't know many researchers like in academia. I'm not. Not sure we are many <laughs> uh, to do that, and even you know. So you would have to recognize because often academic research is done from our country, countries, you know, Europe and US, uh, by researchers in those countries, or even when you have researchers from low and middle income countries, they will come to our countries to get trained, um, and then it's difficult to question the system, you know, that has um, trained you. So the discussion is just starting, you know, decolonizing research, you know. Um, very, very broadly, not just in terms of corporations, but but you have a few a few researchers, you know, small groups of group of researchers who are discussing that. Um, but then, as you mentioned, you know, it's, it's mostly civil society organizations. I've mentioned Fian Colombia, for example, in the food space that I you know is doing a great job. Um, corporate accountability to some extent, also because it has helped with some indigenous groups as well. Uh, and then at at the country level, you know, I've I've been amazed by the level of um, 
willingness of people to change things and to question things, even when they don't have a lot of resources. So, for example, in France, we had a discussion about the need to protect and promote breastfeeding breastfeeding a few weeks ago with the Ministry of Health. And everyone was saying, well, we don't have the resources, we don't have the capacity. And I'm like, you don't really need that. I mean... Um, of course, everyone you know needs time and and support to do things. But I've seen like things you know happening in Latin America, for example, with little money, you know, just with the power of the people and and the willingness for them to speak against certain corporations um, coming together. I think also in Latin in Latin America, they were very good at at working in network. Um, so not staying alone and trying to you know to advocate for something, but really having different voices from different sectors, civil society, governments, even you know some very good people in in the governments um, and and in academia, etc. So I think together, like the, the things that work best, where where you have all of those groups, you know, coming together and working together. So in terms of health, health and corporations, for example, in Brazil, Colombia, you have you have very good coalitions. Very good movements. I want to ask one more question, which is about the structure of the book. Um, you've taken on an industry that's extraordinarily complex. On the one hand, it's really centralized, and on the other, it's very distributed. Um, the layers of impacts, uh, we see them at the intersection of democracy, health, land, sovereignty, um, racial and health justice. So how did you make decisions about what to keep out of the book? How did you land yeah. on structuring the book the way that you did? Yeah, and I think, you know, I've also not totally answered your question than from before, you know, what was the what is the food industry? So yes, you know, you have everything for farmers and even in that sector, you have the smaller farmers and then the big ones who are uh, very powerful and, and use pesticides and, you know, so it's it's a specific part of the industry, which I would count as part of the food industry, uh, you know, because they they serve they serve then the industry with their ingredients and and staple food. Um, then you have the processed food industry, so the one was tra- was transforming the products from from farmers, um, and after that you have distribution, supermarkets, and even the marketing industry, the marketing sector, public relations also, uh, to do those, those specific agencies, law firms, you know, that are, um, that some companies in the processed food industry can contract for specific aspects of their activities. So for my book, I really concentrated on the food, on the processed food industry. Um, I've discussed supermarkets, supermarkets a little bit. I've discussed some of the specialized also firms a little bit, farmers, farmers as well to some extent, because I think that's where also we need to connect more, um, connect with our farmers, understand where our food comes from. I think it's, you know, some typical, you know, message that we hear more and more, but it's so true that, you know, if there was a little bit less disconnection between us and and the food and the people who grow our food before it's processed, I think that we will be in a better state with our food system. Um, 
But then, you know, from that processed food industry that I focused on, I really tried to impact all of, impact all of their activities, their products, and be as broad as I could. So, as I said, you know, I've discussed the system, the neoliberal system. I've also discussed um, something that is a bit more sensitive, philanthropic, we call it philanthropic capitalism. So when those big philanthropes, you know, uh, people with a lot of money, get to fund research and, and also political activities and activism, um, advocacy, etc. So with Gates, Bloomberg and all others uh, having a lot of money and being involved in that space, they make money from corporations. Uh, so it's it's also, you know, it's, a, it's also another issue that remain, I think, an, an answer in, in academia. Uh, but just to say that the spectrum of activities that I have covered in the book is quite broad, even if, you know, I couldn't, of course, cover everything. So it's like an introduction, I think, to the topic, mm. understanding what are the commercial determinants of health with an illustration of what the food industry is doing, because this is where I've worked for, you know, the past few years. I have also illustrations from the alcohol industry, because this is another industry that I work on, infant formula. Um, industry, so the baby food industry, I call it, um, is also something that I had tried to illustrate in the book. What are their different practices? Um, but but then you know it's 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 opening also the discussion and trying to reflect on the fact that it's not just those elements in the food industry. It's not just the food industry. Uh, it's also other industries that are problematic. Yeah. What are you working on now? This is this is the you know the way that we we tend to end all of the New Books Network interviews, and it sounds like uh, this is one of the most appropriate times to ask the question because if this book is just a beginning, it's very exciting to see where research on this topic goes, and not just research, but what I have followed in your work over the past few years, especially, is that it's research that. Um, is very translatable into regulation, or at least raises conversations quickly about regulation. Yes. They're contested conversations, but uh, they they go into that territory pretty pretty quickly. So, what is it that you're working on now, and where does where does what this book begins go from here? Yeah, so I, I mean, towards the end of the book, I had tried to give solutions to people. Um, because of course, and it could be depressing to understand that our system is making us sick, that you know many corporations in the system are making us sick. and And I was starting to get depressed after ten years, you know, working on different continents and just seeing the same thing over same things over and over again, even if it was different companies, not exa- exactly the same practices, but you understand that, yeah, um they are doing very similar things in different regions, different industries as well, because I've worked on alcohol, alcohol, etc. So there is a space to continue doing that work, understanding what corporations are doing, because we haven't covered, of course, not not all of the countries across the globe, um, not all of the companies, and the the industry is very clever also at creating new strategies to influence our policymakers, to influence communities. but where I want to go with my research is very looking at solutions. So I'm looking at, for example, for my research now, uh, we know that there are a few things that the government could be doing to try and protect its population. Any given government could have a good register of lobbyists, could have limits on donations to political parties, um, 
could have uh, a law on how much time after having left his job, uh, a politician can then go and work in the industry, uh, or, you know, so there is a buffer between the time he leaves and, and the time he works in the industry. Um, so we know that there are different things that the government could be doing. What I'm doing is that I'm looking at a given government and trying to uh, evaluate the level of implementation of those different solutions so that I can benchmark governments and also giving a voice to the people in that discussion. So once we know where the government, you know, perhaps it has like, I don't know, three point, points out of 10 points that could have, you know, if he was doing everything perfectly. So giving a voice to the people, you know, asking them, you know, where, what do you think should be done next? You know, what should be the priority for our your government? You know, what should they be doing? to try and protect the policy space from undue influence from corporations and, and to, you know, protecting the people as well. Um, so I'm doing that also trying to help different civil society organizations who are thinking about that corporate influence on their activities. We know that there are some conflicts of interest policies, for example, put in place by some organizations, even professional associations, etc. The thing is that we don't know if those policies are working, if they're any useful. We don't know um, if sanctions are put in place, if people don't respect the policies. Are the policies implemented? So um, unless we know what works or not, then we can have those in place, but perhaps it won't change anything. Um, if I'm taking the example of scientific research, now almost every journal asks the, the authors of a publication, of a scientific publication, to declare its interest, what funding you got, who, which company did you work with, etc. in the past three to five years, usually. And we've done that for the past 15, 20 years. But, so, so everything is more transparent now. Now we know that Coca-Cola and Nestle and others are funding research. Mm. But we don't really know if it has changed anything, you know, to be more transparent. So those companies are still very much influencing research, are still very much uh, paying for science to be on their side. So is, you know, transparency the best alternative or, you know, some colleagues in, you know, ethicists, people who work in, in health and law and, and bioethics are asking just for, um, you know, a different, a different model where perhaps we don't take money from the industry to do our research. And perhaps that would be more useful than just having a policy, you know, where we declare our interest, but then it does nothing to protect our research from, from the influence of corporations. So looking at those solutions, you know, what works, what doesn't, what the people also want to see achieved first. Um, so I'm really trying to give a space for people in academic research um, and also academic research can serve also to talk with policymakers and translates into policymaking, as you said. So um, so trying also to bring the people in, in that in that space, um, if I can. Um, and another small thing, you know, that's also not, not small because it's important, but another thing that interests me for my research are the um, intimidations, I call them, you know, the threats received by people working on those corporations, uh, and the impact that they have on our health, planetary health, you know, as, as well. Um, we also, we often have barriers to publish or we receive threatening messages when we publish. 
Um, and it can be much more uh, scaring than that in some countries. You know, we've talked about low and middle income countries. In those countries, corporations are very bold and very aggressive um, and do crazy things, including, you know, the killing of uh, of um, activists. So with my research, I'm also trying to give a space to uh, and having more knowledge about those intimidations that people are facing and how can we collectively learn about them and also how can we respond to those intimidations that we are receiving. So that is another another uh, area of my research. Thank you so much for coming on today. It's been, you know, I have been following your work for a few years, but I learned a lot in our conversation today. And, you know, this, this uh, normally I push back when people say, but we have to have solutions because sometimes this is a shortcut to what's really happening. Um, but in listening to you, it's clear and exciting to see that this is a long-term project and you can do both yeah. at the same time. So I appreciate so much that you came on today and really looking forward to seeing where this goes. Many thanks. Thanks. Thank you again, Nana. It was a pleasure. Thank you.